Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for our fifth creature feature of our Monster Bracket. This week, we will be discussing The Shape of Water, as well as The Mummy Returns. And this is round two. If you didn't listen to the first ones, not sure what you're doing. Maybe you just didn't care about The Exorcist or Interview the Vampire. For round two, we've decided to incorporate some of the history of these monsters into our discussion. So... Not only are we going to be talking about the films I already mentioned, but we are also talking about their kind of precursor films. So this week we'll also be discussing 1958's The Creature from the Black Lagoon, as well as 1932's The Mummy. The Mummy gets the coveted honor of being the oldest movie we've watched for this podcast, beating out Snow White by just a few years. We talked about Snow White in our very first episode. I can't necessarily encourage people to go back and listen to it because it's our very first episode. It's and not very good. It's not. I don't know. Maybe if there's enough interest, we'll do a mini episode with our thoughts on the original Snow White. Yeah. But we're not talking about Snow White right now. We're talking about the creatures in the Black Lagoon. Yeah. We're not going to do full summaries, but the rough plot, a bunch of scientists go to a lagoon to try to find some missing link and the missing link finds them. They fight, most of them die, then they kill the creature. A lot of horror films from this time period have pretty simple plots. Yeah, focusing mo- mostly on like the strength of the characters and acting. Yeah, as well as the strength of the movie makeup and effects. Yeah, I think at the time, the creature was stunning. It just has not aged super well. Oh, for sure. Like most things with horror, we've seen newer things we can do better now because we have so much practice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at the time... Amazing. I feel like we can't talk about without talking about the woman who made the suit and how little of her due she's gotten. Yeah, so Millicent Patrick is one of the major contributors to the look of the Gill Man, specifically the uh, facial prosthetics and, well, they're not really prosthetics, it's kind of just a, like, mask or helmet that the actor would put on. Yeah. Actually, actors, because there are two different actors portraying the Gilman in the movie. One actor for all the scenes on land and one actor for all the scenes in the water. Up until, I think, earlier this year, Millicent Patrick was not credited with the creation of the Gilman. It was uh, the male effects director on the film, who I'm not going to mention here because fuck him. Yeah, yeah. I think the the creature is kind of the best part of the movie. Mm -hmm. It is visually stunning. And even when it looks a little doofy, like there's a certain... The expression the creature is forced to make is a little silly sometimes. It's got this like doofy fish mouth going on. Yeah. I understand what they were trying for. I don't think it necessarily works out. Also, doofy fish mouth, TM band name. And I think watching this, it's incredibly clear that The Shape of Water is functionally a soft sequel. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can definitely read The Shape of Water as a sequel to the alternate ending of Creature from the Black Lagoon. If Mark had been successful in capturing the creature and bringing it back alive, Mark is very similar to Strickland in The Shape of Water. Mm. And then David is a bit closer to Hofstetler? Yes, uh, David wants to preserve the creature at all costs. Uh, like It's a huge scientific discovery and in general has a bit more respect for the creature, although that doesn't prevent him from killing it in the end it's a bit depressing like his character arc is learning to value life less Mm -hmm. like legolas i think one of the biggest differences is the shift in cast so creature from the black goon has a very very white cast in fact there are a few characters who are portrayed to be native of brazil but are definitely not 
native Brazilians. Mm-hmm. I think there are a few Latinx actors who are in there, but there's just as many who are just white people in makeup. So. Yeah, yeah. And because the film is in black and white, that happened pretty often. People had a much wider range for the races and skin tones that they could portray on film. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll actually get into that when we talk about the 1932 mummy as well. Oh, I'm so excited that we're going to get into that. <laughs> Whereas The Shape of Water is a comparatively more diverse cast. Yeah. I think one of the biggest differences is how many women are in the cast and how how much women drive the plot of Shape of Water as compared to Creature of the Black Lagoon, where uh, the female character is kind of just a plot device for the creature to want to kidnap. Yeah. Honestly, there's only one more woman who drives the plot in Shape of Water. It goes from one to two. Ah, ah, ah. So twice as many. But Yeah, but it's... It's also the quality of their contributions to right. the plot. Like, Shape of Water definitely passes the Bechdel test. Yes. Yeah. I'm impressed with uh, some of the film's attempts to be scientifically accurate, but I'm also frustrated by certain huge failures in that regard. Most of the biology is relatively on point, although thinking of species that have existed for thousands or millions of years as failed is kind of weird many thousands of ways nature tried to get life out of the sea and onto the land this one failed he hasn't changed in millions of years i know my biggest annoyance is that the actual black lagoon couldn't geographically exist because rivers don't work that way so the black lagoon is kind of this reverse tributary of the river that they're on so instead of this smaller river feeding into the larger one. This larger one feeds into a smaller one, and then it feeds into this like swampy lake area, mm-hmm. uh, which also is not what a lagoon is at all. <laughs> yeah, no. The only explanation is magic. Speaking of magic and stuff, so in the shape of water, the creature is. You know, the natives in the Amazon worshipped it like a god. Doesn't look like much of a god now, does it? Well, they're primitive, sir. You know, they would toss offerings into the water, flowers, fruits, crap like that. And so I figured that was going to be a part of the plot in Black Lagoon. It wasn't. Some of the locals think of the Black Lagoon as paradise, but they also, like, no one has ever returned. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, I'm glad we didn't get, like, you know, scary natives worshipping this thing. That would have been hashtag not great. But I'm intrigued that that was a thing that Del Toro added to the plot. Mm-hmm. Oh, he didn't add the whole, like, the role of God in creation of things aspect. That was, like, the film starts with... In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Mm-hmm. I think final thoughts as far as, like, comparisons between these two films is... The Shape of Water is as close to a direct sequel as possible. At one point, Guillermo del Toro was actually signed on to direct a remake of the film... They didn't like his direction because it was too sympathetic to the monster. (laughs) And so due to creative differences and his other many projects, they went with someone else, but that film never materialized. And then Del Toro decided, no, I'm still going to make that movie. Yeah. We don't have a lot of other Gilman in, you know, popular fiction to do any kind of comparison or history with. I mean, especially this one or two sequels that happened. I think like there's one of the Abbott and Gazelle's meet the whatevers. And... Then Shape of Water, that's about it. Mm-hmm. I guess you could argue some of the Lovecraftian stuff where you have amphibian humanoids who just really want to do sex at human women could qualify, but that's kind of only tangential. Yeah, those definitely feel like convergent evolution as opposed to being from the same lineage. Ah, so you've been learning about some science things. 
Well, no, I just knew that. Yeah, so yeah. Um, <laughs> hopefully everyone knows about conversion evolution. Google exists. Yeah. Educate yourselves. Yeah. Here, educate yourself. Why don't we start talking about The Shape of Water proper? And I want to start with actually one of the biggest differences between the two films, and that is their choice of palette. Yeah. Well, I mean... Or lack thereof. <laughs> right. So, like, 1958 Creature from the Black Lagoon is filmed in black and white, although tech, uh, Technicolor technology was definitely around at the time. It was just not uh, nearly as widespread. Mm-hmm. A big part of this was that films from this era were kind of the second wave of black and white creature features, and they're trying to um, harken back to some stuff from the 30s. So I can see how that would make sense for a stylistic choice. Yeah. However, while Del Toro did at one point debate bait uh, filming The Shape of Water in black and white. The studio wasn't super interested in that, and that was a compromise that he was more willing to make. And so we got the gorgeous blues and greens of The Shape of Water. It's not just that he, like, oh, I filmed in color and wasn't deliberate with it. Like, palette that Del Toro has chosen is incredibly deliberate. It's very muted except for these gorgeous blues and the occasional bright red to draw the eye. You get some sharp yellows too, especially more like urban settings. Generally, the kind of yellow lights have this unnature feeling. Not any like, it's unnatural and therefore it's It's just artificial light. Yeah, it's just artificial light, but it, it makes the space feel more like dank and unbeautiful. Mm-hmm. And there are some pieces of the film where Del Toro decides to go with black and white for a number of the scenes where Giles and Eliza are watching television. They're watching black and white TV, specifically like old musicals. And then calling back to that, we have Eliza's dream sequence that is all filmed in black and white as well. This film definitely still has affection for its source material, even while it's critiquing it. And I will, I would say that Creature from the Black Lagoon gets a pass for not looking, you know, as rich because it's, you know, over 50 years old at this point. Mm. But I'd argue that The Mummy looks richer than it does, and it was 20 years old at that point. So, no pass there. Yeah. Circling back to science, Creature from the Black Lagoon definitely has a certain, like, we learned all this cool science stuff. It's nifty. Let's share it with the audience thing. Whereas Shape of Water doesn't seem all that interested in it. Characters in the film certainly know and care about science, but the Shape of Water seems way more interested in the like magical fairy tale aspect of things than trying to like make the creature make sense or explore what kind of science Hofstadter wants to get from this creature. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a bad thing. I I'm just gonna note it as a thing. Del Toro is definitely very uninterested in exploring that. I mean, you have the line from Zelda. Some of the best minds in the country peeing all over the floor in this here facility. Mm, mm, mm. Admittedly, a lot of the science of the time was... A boys club? Well, oh, yes, that's you, definitely. But I mean, also a lot of it, ha- science has marched on. Like, mm. it's not that nothing we learned there was useful. It's just that we've learned new things now that have replaced a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Trying to be educational with this wouldn't really work because the characters mm-hmm. wouldn't know things that we now know. Yeah. So it winds up trying to be more socially educational with like the LGBT themes and all that jazz. Yeah. Although I do like the way that uh, the film harkens back to the original and ties the amphibian man into the space race. Someday spaceships will be traveling from Earth to other planets. How are human beings going to survive on those planets? The atmosphere will be different. The pressures will be different. You want to put a man in space. He's going to have to endure conditions the human body just wasn't made for. Yes, that was great. So because it's a movie looking backwards, you know, it now knows that the space race is going to be an increasingly big thing in the next decade or two. Whereas in 54, that was 
still just a you know infinite world of wonder and possibility that they didn't know what it was going to be like that was some cool science to get into that they mm-hmm. were looking for how creatures that can deal with pressure can help people get into space great that actually that's still cool although one thing is incredibly interesting to me so for the most part throughout creature from the black lagoon they refer to the Gilman as the creature, which is less dehumanizing than many of the people in The Shape of Water referring to the amphibian man as the asset. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a subtle change, but it's very interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, in Black Lagoon, they're in his turf, they're relatively unarmed, they're dealing with a lot of unknowns. It's a slow, dwindling party thing as the, as the creature takes out more and more of the people on this boat. Whereas when he's, you know, in some lab basement in Baltimore, he gets curb stomped. There's no way which this creature is able to, like, fight back uh, against his captors. So it makes sense that even more of his power is taken away by removing even more of his humanity. That's not the right word, but, you know, you know what I mean. So we've talked and praised this movie for some of its more progressive themes, how it's getting into different intersections of oppression and uniting against common oppressors to, you know, free each other. The whole really great bit where it's like, you know, um, uh, he's not even human. If we do nothing, then neither are we. All very good. But I've been reading a lot of articles by disabled people who weren't super here for all of it. The association of oppressed people with the monster is for many people it can you know, can have liberating aspects but for other people it can have aspects of pushing away and being more dehumanizing than radicalizing i guess uh there's a good article called uh, um, i belong where the people are that posits that the thesis of the a shape of water is that disabled people should be off on their own with each other as opposed to part of society and they make a good point the film ends with eliza being taken off to this world with the amphibian man wherever he lives does he have are there are there more of him is there a culture we don't really know we don't know what that is going to look like for her and is she going to actually enjoy that world the amphibian man does you know invite her to come with and she's not interested and she doesn't have a lot of agency in becoming a submersible woman i read it as she always was and this was her rediscovering her like culture and her heritage i like that better because it allows me to feel more comfortable with how the movie ends yeah yeah but i i don't necessarily disagree that the the other reading is invalid i will say that i think part of it is Guillermo del Toro by no means invented the idea of monsters as coded as the other in cinema. Right. Uh, he's just commenting on it. And I think that the criticism is maybe ignoring a little bit too much of that history. I can see that. Yeah. And like I I still think the themes work and they work, they work for me, but I think it's definitely something that's divisive for yeah. a lot of people. And yeah. I don't want to leave those voices out. Yeah. yeah. I also think that like a more valid criticism is the fact that well Eliza wasn't really ever mute she just was not like entirely human so it kind of is erasing that uh, disability from the film to a certain extent well that is definitely a theoretical part of her history she's still living as a mute woman for 20 to 30 years mm-hmm. and I've, and on a material level i think the differentiation between being a mute woman and living in the form of a mute woman for 30 years without knowing that you could have been something else is splitting hairs fair enough yeah like i get what you're saying and i think that that's definitely a way in which the eliza was always this thing becoming more problematized i, I don't think it erases everything the film is doing building mm-hmm. rap. Let's 
let's get into an archaeology movie. All right. I think the first thing I noticed about the mummy is just how much the 1999 film was a love letter to the 1932 film. Mm-hmm. A lot of the names are reused, like the mummy Imhotep uses the name Art of the Bay as kind of civilian cover identity. Mm-hmm. That's his, that's his uh, Clark Kent, as it were. Mm-hmm. Onyx and Amun is still the woman that Imhotep loved, and the reasons for him being punished are slightly different, but comparable. Yeah. Sadly, it's not that he was too gay with a Vestal Virgins. <laughs> so Imhotep was sentenced to death not only in this world, but in the next. Uh, maybe he got too gay with the Vestal Virgins in the temple. Big mood. Uh, it's that he was resorting to basically doing everything he could to resurrect his uh, dead lover. And there's less of an element of betrayal of the king. Yes. Yeah. So, again, we still have this sympathetic mummy figure, which I think is what helps the character be stronger. I think another thing that helps the character be stronger is that the pacing of this film is much better than Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, for sure. Like, we get where the conflict is really fast. There's pieces constantly jockeying back and forth on the board to see who's going to come out on top. There's twists, betrayals, subterfuge. Like, there's just a lot of tension whereas there's a lot of dead air in creature from the black lagoon and just kind of waiting around for something to happen they don't even get to the lagoon for like almost the first half of the film whereas with with the mummy we just open with them having already opened that coffin we're not waiting there yeah within the first 10 minutes the mummy is awake and like walking out and driving a person mad and the the mummy is played of course by boris karloff you know the one of the great like monster actors of the period Mm -hmm. and And he's so good the determination and pathos he brings to this character really like helps make it work the makeup effects are also incredible like both while he is just lying in wait in that coffin and the hours upon hours of effort that the makeup department went through to get him ready for that scene i think it took like 12 hours dang which is also why it's only for that one scene and then he's in much more subtle makeup for the rest of the film yeah one thing i'm glad the modern films have mostly managed to stay away from is the whole like the ancient blood of egypt the you know the nubian the ancient blood it makes you more susceptible to mind control so you have made him your slave there's a lot of othering in this film both of like this mythical time of egypt is there a view like this in all the world helen the real egypt but also uh, comparing that mythical time of Egypt as being better than modern day Islamic Egypt. Mm -hmm. You could have conversations about the validity of that, but that's not a conversation that I think any of us or anybody making this film should be allowed to like have a a weighing in on. Yeah. Like in general, it's just being shitty towards the Muslims who inhabit modern day Egypt. Yeah. That's about all I have to say about it. Oh, for sure. On the flip side, we have apparently just always had strong women at the center of mummy movies since, you know, day one. Because Helen is great. Mm-hmm. Helen is the Evie for the movie. Like, there's there's mm-hmm. not a lot of differentiation. Like, hypnotism, kidnapping her to resurrect Onyx and the Moon, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. But she has this strong force of personality. She's funny. She has this great, like, verbal sparring with the love interest guy who thinks he's the Rick but is actually the Jonathan. Oh, I know it seems absurd when we've known each other such a short time, but I'm serious. Don't you think I've had enough excitement for one evening without the additional thrill of a strange man making love to me? One big difference between the two, though, 
here Helen is generally able to realize that she's being that her mind is being um, overlaid with anoxinamon and she's afraid of it while she's intrigued at first she realizes that this thing that's happening to her is actually pretty terrifying and she doesn't want it whereas with Evie when she's kind of getting these Nefertiti memories and skills uh, she starts leaning into it like yeah this is cool I have all this stuff that I can use here I like this which is, I think is a interesting shift and I'm not sure how I feel about it from a writing perspective mm-hmm. I think we also Evie stuff is more picking up a skill set than having her like personality overwritten she gets all of the skills not too much of the emotional baggage right one thing I will criticize the film for is this is just Dracula one thing I'll praise the film for this is just Dracula <laughs> Um, yeah, this is very much um, the like classic Dracula story, just with an Egyptian coat of paint. Yeah, but I mean, it's not bad because of that. It's just a little bit less original, and it makes me appreciate the changes in the 1999 Mummy much more because it moves it further away from that. These films are meant to be straight-up horror, whereas the modern ones that we're talking about are more pulp, more action-adventure, a bit more magic-heavy, which I think works. It creates some variety. There's still a bit of Dracula in there, but you know, not too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he still gets a Renfield. Yes. <laughs> Although, here it's less like mind control and more just... Benny is the worst. We should also talk about the uh, Renfield that Imhotep gets in the 1932 mummy. Yeah. Oh boy. I'll let you handle this one. Yeah. This is some weird uh, Hollywood trivia for you. The character is called the Nubian. It's fine. He is a servant to the professor who initially opened the tomb and the like father of the main character. And he gets mind controlled and switches sides. Here he's played by Noble Johnson. Uh, Noble Johnson was in fact a black man and in fact did a lot to further opportunities for African Americans in Hollywood in a time where it was really difficult for them to break into the industry and not kind of just be token characters or background characters. And part of the reason he was able to do that is because the black and white technology at the time allowed him to play off race and allowed him to play more roles than he would be in film today. However, here in The Mummy, it definitely looks like they have painted him up to darken his skin. And because of that, it very much looks like he's in blackface if you don't know all of the background information. In fact, at initially that's what i thought was going on yeah it's weird it's not my lane to talk about what the validity of all that jazz it is interesting though and i'm i'm glad that there is at least one non-white character kind of in the main cast for this movie um i guess ish Mm -hmm. I don't really have any comments on it. I think it's just kind of this very interesting Hollywood history sort of thing, and I am going to not pass judgment on it. So The 99 Mummy uses a lot of parts of The Mummy, but not all of it. So I like that parts of uh, The Mummy Returns use kind of the... The leftover bits? The leftovers, yeah. Like, in both these films, we have uh, sequences where Imhotep shows his love interest their history while using a scrying pool. Yeah, we've already gotten into the main female protagonists, like, past lives and whatnot that come up more so in Mummy Returns than they do in The 99 Mummy. I understand why it works. I think it's a really interesting trope, unless you have some fun stuff. I think 
think it makes the whiteness of the cast of the mummy more noticeably problematic though yes so, yeah we got into that before but yeah yeah another thing that they really lean into here is the like tragic love aspect of the original the mummy in mummy 99 Imhotep is more of a kind of creeper who doesn't value Evie as a person just a vessel for his dead girlfriend yeah whereas in mummy returns Imhotep clearly does have genuine affection and care for Anaxunamon and her modern day um Reincarnation. Reincarnation, I guess, yeah. And Helen and uh, Ardeth Bay, they definitely still like chemistry. There's a scene where they're not even talking, they're just staring at each other, but they, both the actors are just vibrating with the theory by which they are trying to be the one in control of the scene, and it's really cool and weird. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think that works really well about The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, etc. is how much chemistry the characters have. Like, just everybody feels like they really exist in this world. There's no, even though it's a, a fun, hokey mess with a lot of CGI, no one's breaking character. Everyone really clearly wants to be there. I think that's really important to the film's mm. success. Another thing I, like, difference that I really appreciate is, and this is more so just a change in Hollywood trends. So the 1932 Mummy, we are solidly in the period of Hollywood that saw heavy prevalence of the mid-Atlantic accent for those of you who are unfamiliar in a lot of older films you'll notice this really weird kind of nasally accent on most of the characters and it's kind of hard to tell whether they're supposed to be british or american that's what the mid-atlantic accent is there's a lot of information online and i know wired has a vocal coach who does videos on their channel and recently talked about this if memory serves it's because early film audio technology was not very good so you kind of had to talk in a certain way for you to be picked up properly the other reason is because that accent was kind of taught as proper english Mm. like this is the most correct way to speak english and that caught on with a lot of preparatory schools as well as theater and thespian groups so when we move into film like a lot of people who worked as stage actors moved in to work on movies and so that accent kind of came along with it. Mm. And that's not in the 99 Mummy because it's kind of fallen out of favor because it's weird and artificial. Yeah. <laughs> Again, kind of interesting Hollywood history. The Mummy 32 also does a decent job of having done at least some research into Egyptian history and mythology. I mean, I'm not going to teach a class or whatever, but it does a not half bad job of name dropping, I think, five or six yeah, uh, about gods. Ha- yeah, about half a dozen. Yeah. We get Osiris, Isis... Bast, Amunra, Thoth. Which, for the 30s, I think is pretty good. I mean, admittedly, like, Egyptology was a big popular thing at the time, so it's not surprising to me, but... Yeah, King Tut's tomb had just been opened up not terribly long before. Yeah. And, I mean, what if you open a tomb, and the tomb wanted to open you? It's just kind of a fun trope, so I get why that's there, but, yeah. The mummy is, I think less bad about Egyptian mythology than The Mummy Returns. You don't have the dark god Anubis. The Scorpion King made a pact with the dark god Anubis. Yeah. He's just the Heartway guy. It still boggles my mind that Anubis has an army. Like, what is Anubis going to do with an army? <laughs> uh, take over the known world. Uh, obviously. He's there to weigh feathers. <laughs> They're all, like, clerks and secretaries and stuff. See, that that's a mummy movie that I'd love to see. <laughs> I guess that's more of Thoth's army, but yeah. A mummy movie that's like Thoth versus Anubis where you have just a bunch of secretaries and librarians versus a bunch of accountants and surveyors. And bureaucrats. Yeah. Get at us, Hollywood. <laughs> Give us all the money. All these films have this like fantasy Egypt as a well from which they draw all their plot because obviously you're gonna. But it makes me kind of sad that the more modern version did a less good job with that. Mm-hmm. Although it does, I mean, also have better fantastical elements. It's got these armies, it's got this magic, it's got the, you know, the wave with the face. And as much as scarabs don't work that way, I like the way that the 
uh, 99, 2001 mummies use them? A like, fairly, land uh, piranhas? Land piranhas, like a fairly low-level D&D encounter, but there's just so many of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, those are fun. A thing I'm sad about that I really miss from the mummy is that the climax, and this is not a thing we just talked about at all, and it's baffling to me, is Helen leans into the whole reincarnated priestess thing and <clears throat> allows herself to remember all the ancient prayers and invokes Isis to just straight up fuck up the mummy. Teach me the ancient summons, the holy spells I've forgotten. I call upon thee as of old. The men don't do shit. It's just these two and a half women just doing all the work. And I'm kind of sad that we've moved further and further away from having Isis, this really cool, really powerful, really like beloved, really interesting deity being more and more out of the picture of these films. Also, in general, the 1932 mummy just kind of ends. Yeah. To be fair, Creature from the Black Lagoon also does the same thing. I think it's just kind of a theme in old Hollywood's like, uh, and then it's over, the end. Although I will say, Shape of Water kind of does that too. It has a very conclusive ending. It wraps up all the things that we needed to know about, but I don't really know what happens to Giles and Zelda and all them afterwards. Like, I don't know if they're okay. Do they keep being more rebellious? Have they significantly changed or do they go back to their lives? How does it all work out? Yeah. Mummy Returns is also pretty, like, just they get out of there and they're on an airship and credits. They nod towards like what they might do in the future. Sure. But it's there's breathing room after the climax is more what I'm talking about here with sure. ending. And I think both Shape of Water and The Mummy Returns do a decent job with having that breathing room and kind of cool down after the climax. Whereas the two films from 32 and 54 respective just kind of the creature's dead. And we're done. I actually want to talk about a interesting comparison between the two. So in 1932's Mummy, we have Boris Karloff and we have this effect with his hypnotism where it's just kind of a close-up of his face and his eyes glow. It's very classic. I'm, most of you have probably seen it, at least a picture of it. Mm-hmm. In The Mummy Returns, right before Rick enters the chamber to fight the Scorpion King, he's like walking through this hallway and these like lights are flashing on and off and I kind of get this similar sense to it and it's just gorgeous filmmaking. While there are parts of The Mummy Returns that have maybe not held up in terms of filmmaking, poor, poor Rock the Scorpion, the way the scenes are shot is gorgeous, especially fight scenes. I, I feel like we talked about this before, but the way the camera breathes and lets the characters interact in the scene is really great. And the fast-paced editing is just really effective for that. Although there is one very notable example of the editing uh, not working out terribly well. Uh, we alluded to it when the movie returns one last round, but as Rick, you know, stabs the Scorpion King and, you know, Go to hell and take your friends with you! There's a solid pause, and then we get Imhotep, <laughs> like, running, kneeling down and saying, Uh, the best edit in this or any movie. It is. We live in a society. <laughs> it is so objectively bad, but it is so hilarious. And it comes at the worst moment if you're looking for like tense drama, but it comes at the best moment if you're like, oh no, we want to blow away all this tension with the best comedic timing ever. <laughs> the tension does come back once Imhotep and Rick are hanging into, into the 
Hellmouth or whatever, and we get the like, like, will they make it out? Will their lovers come back for them? The movie like slams tension to the ground, but ramps it back up pretty quickly. So good on it, movie. Yeah, it's a, it's a very odd edit. I really don't know how it got through. Honestly, I think what happened is they were going through the takes and that was like the best one, but it hadn't been edited or anything yet. And they're like, that's fucking hilarious. Just keep it in. Yeah. The comedy is really good in all the Mummy films, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I mean that helps with the pulpy feeling. While there are good moments of high drama, it never feels too heavy because the characters are fun and grippy. It yeah. makes them more likable. Yeah, you never lose hope. I can't say the same for Mummy 32. There's a lot of sort of men standing around being like, oh, the prophecy, oh, the women. Yeah, they don't really do a whole lot, and Imhotep is always like two or three steps ahead of them. Yeah. And he's not having fun. It was that Arnold Vosloo is enjoying himself. There's a smug smirkness to him. Yeah, he is having so much fun being this villain. But I think that's also why the no bit works. is because throughout all these films, Imhotep's kind of... Campy? Well, campy, but also kind of like a bit of a useless man. He has strong like ugh, menfolk energy. <laughs> he has all this power and he's all about this girl who just isn't that into him. I don't want to say that he's pathetic in a way that makes him a lesser antagonist or a lesser actor or anything, but the character has a kind of patheticness to him in, in terms of like the scale of villainry. Honestly, if he was a protagonist, we'd think of him as an underdog. A little bit, yeah. Apart from, you know, having phenomenal psychic powers. Weasley. He's Weasley. He has a Weasley nature to him. Even in the original Mummy, he has this kind of like creepy dude vibe of like, oh, I will replace this woman with the woman I want. Mm -hmm. It is sinister, but it's also just kind of like, really, that's your whole evil plan? (laughs) That's it? Mm-hmm. There are a few like other moments towards the climax that I really want to talk about, and I think they get like missed a little bit just because of how much is going on at the time. One is the kind of hieroglyphic instruction manual for how to use the Spear of Osiris. It's really, really hokey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's Rich just finding this drawing that looks exactly like him, showing him how the spear works. And it's... It's life-size. It's not like on a wall that he has the opportunity to read because he's like pinned down. It's three or four huge life-size pairs like, here's how to use it, you idiot. You get the sense that if this was a D&D game, everyone who looked at the spear is rolling really low and the DM is like, there's no other way to make them understand it. Heck it. There we go. The spear! The golden stick thing! It's a a spear! Although John Hanna's face when uh, he opens up the spear <laughs> is just amazing because like I had that pointed at my eye. Yeah, that's another bit that I love about John Hanna. He's told us the spear and he immediately looks into it like it's a lightsaber or something. <laughs> oh, it's so very good. Oh, John Hanna. I think it's about time to talk about uh, monster movie magic. Yeah, well, let's hit on the early films first just while we're okay. here. Black Lagoon's very, like, distinctive suit or the mummy's, like, really beautiful mummy makeup. I honestly think that the mummy makeup holds up much better. Mm. It's just so iconic and it doesn't have the dorky fish mouth. Yeah. And I think it helps a lot that Boris Karloff knows how to wear makeup. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. We're not judging these films or anything, but yeah. just... 
while we're here. Like, and I don't want to bag on the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's an iconic monster, and Millicent Patrick should be incredibly proud of her design. For sure, yeah. But for the main event, Mummy Returns versus Shape of Water, what has better monster movie magic? I think it's very interesting looking at the monsters compared to their earlier counterparts. The creature from the Black Lagoon and the amphibian man from the Shape of Water, one is directly connected to the other. I've mentioned previously the makeup that doug jones is wearing and the creature design as a whole is it's kind of like halfway between creature from the black lagoon and ape sapien from the hellboy films which guillermo del toro also directed they're good ones anyway yes i mean ape sapien doesn't appear in the other one you see a hand in the post-credit scene that's not ape i refuse to believe that (laughs) that's dave (laughs) that's dave (laughs) dave sapien um But on the other hand, you have The Mummy Returns and its prequel. We don't ever really see Imhotep in bandages for the most part. I mean, we kind of do, but they're so old that they are one with his skin at this point. So it doesn't, it's not like the, like, well, the classic white Not weapons. even, like, when he's the juicy mummy, we see him in bandages. But once he is resurrected, they kind of all come off. Mm. We are seeing much more of this kind of halfway between rotted and desiccated flesh. Mm-hmm. And at the time, those effects were phenomenal, like groundbreaking. And I think they still generally hold up pretty well. Yeah, like... You can still see that they're CGI, but it doesn't bother me. They're CGI, but it, because of all the fantastical elements going on, I'm willing to forgive it for not like looking how it would probably look in quote-unquote real life yeah it's really hard to judge these two because they're both very different the shape of water has a single solitary very good effect and the memory returns has a lot of effects of differing qualities yes it's also weird because as the film progresses you're seeing less and less of that like initial makeup on himotep although we're, we're getting like you said other effects or other mummies for Rick and the gang to fight. Whereas in, you know, The Shape of Water, where the amphibian man doesn't really change. He's always that amphibian man. Doug Jones is always in that suit and makeup. I mean, he does do that one thing, and the viewers can't tell that I'm replicating the hand motions that Eliza made to explain how the sex works, but (laughs) he does have one noticeable way his body changes. Yeah, but we don't ever see that happen. Yeah, for better or worse. Because I'm thinking of a lot of the effects from the mummy and pushing them onwards towards uh, Mummy Returns, I might want to give it to Shape of Water because so much of the effects that I love are in the mummy and then they're just reused as opposed to creating this like new beautiful thing. Yeah, they're kind of like reused or reiterated on like the the sandstorm is translated to the water in the sequel film. Mm-hmm. There's less originality in the Mummy Returns as far as effects go. Yeah. Which is fine, but... We also, uh, for The Shape of Water, we also didn't talk about the rotting fingers on Strickland's Uh, hand. The rotting fingers. Uh. (laughs) They're so well done. They're very gross. I like it. (laughs) They are very gross, but that's what makes them great. Yeah. Our second head-to-head competition part of this, what has improved on the source material more? Ooh. I think they both improved on their source material. I think they've done it in very different ways. So The Mummy is kind of shifting from horror to like this pulpy action, and in doing so, making things much more exciting. We're getting more characters outside of The Mummy, and it's distinguishing itself a lot more from Dracula. Whereas 32, it's like all of the mesmerism stuff is very just straight out of Dracula. The way it's reflavored in The 99 Mummy and Mummy Returns is much more interesting. It much more evokes like the plagues of Egypt and like these 
wrathful divine entities and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas the shape of water is improving upon source material by kind of imagining an alternate ending and sequel and specifically commenting on some of the ways that the original fell short. Which I think is important because it's while the Mummy and the Mummy Returns are reveling in their past, the shape of water is directly commenting on it. Which I think makes it a more layered and nuanced film. Also, I think that Mummy 32 is already a pretty good film with some notable flaws. Um, whereas Creatures of the Black Lagoon, I wouldn't watch it again. It's not... Yeah. I think, yeah, like, I, I'm i not sure how much more you get out of repeat watchings for that. It Like, it's a fine movie. I would recommend people watching it once, but... Honestly, I was surprised at how well 1932's The Mummy held up. I, I w- want to rewatch it, honestly. <laughs> Which means that I think that Shape of Water probably has improved a bit more. Mm-hmm. I think it's time for our final vote. Honestly, for me, it was a little bit of a tie. I think I like both of them in a lot of ways, but because Shape of Water had more monster movie magic, I'll let it edge ahead a little bit. I think for me, it's... It's going to be The Shape of Water. I love The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. They're excellent films, but they don't have the artistry that The Shape of Water does. And I can see how much love and effort went into it. I'm also just a huge fan of Del Toro, so that also helps kind of edge in Shape of Water. Yeah. I don't feel bad about the decision. So that means that Shape of Water is going to end up in our final. And The Mummy is not going to return. Which is a pity. They're really fun. I will probably watch them at least once more this year, just unrelated to the podcast. So what do we have coming up next week? We have The Sixth Sense versus The Witches of Eastwick Mm. and their companion movies. Bell Book and Candle for our witch movie, as well as our ghost film, The Uninvited. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We hope you tune in next time, and we hope you watch at least The Mummy, if not The Creature of the Black Lagoon. I know that you're never sure what you're getting into when you're watching older films, but I think these are both worth worth a watch. And if you want to make sure to be notified as soon as our next episode goes up, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. But until next time, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.